Welcome to Regulated and Relational, the bi-monthly podcast produced by the Attachment and Trauma Network. Today, ATN's Executive Director Julie Beam and Parent Program Director Ginger Healy explore what it's like as our society starts to get back to normal and what that normal looks like. They share their insights on collective grief and collective change. Let's listen in. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Regulated and Relational, our podcast produced by the Attachment and Trauma Network. I'm Ginger Healy. And I'm Julie Beam. And today we're going to talk about something that is on our minds right now. As we're emerging from this global pandemic and life is getting back to normal, you can't see my air quotes, (laughs) we just want to talk about the question of, are we really going to get back to normal? Yes, because Ginger and I, we're not really convinced that emotionally we're going to go back to the way things were before this pandemic nor that we should go back. Right, Ginger? Right. I mean, I think it's important for us all to recognize for ourselves and for the children in our lives that we have all changed and that life as we knew it prior to 2020 has changed. And that we've all experienced what we call a collective grief, much like we experienced a collective shock and then grief during 9-11 we're now emerging from another widespread collective grief. Okay. So because we want to make sure we're all on the same page, let's talk about grief. Can you give us a quick definition and understanding of what grief is, Ginger? Yeah, absolutely. Grief is really a natural reaction to loss. It's a universal and a personal experience. It can be felt as sorrow physical pain, anguish, and more. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross is kind of the pioneer of what we call the stages of grief. That first stage being denial, where you can deny or just ignore that death or another loss is close. And it can happen in a full and complete sense. For example, you know, saying there is no way that I'm going to die or a partial sense, something like I have cancer, but it's really no big deal. Denial is basically your ego taking a defensive attitude. Your mind really tries to find a way just to maintain that well-being, even if this is a situation where you're powerless. What that really brings up for me is that, you know, is that we all go to denial real quickly when something happens. And it's because of that powerlessness, right? I mean, that's the huge concept. Back in episode one, when we were talking about the definition of trauma, I remember that that word being powerless comes up, that concept of, of feeling terror when you're powerless and, um, and grief really is a result of feeling that powerlessness, right? The things are out of control and I can't do anything about it. Yeah, that's exactly it. You hit the nail on the head. And that's where we uh, talk about the next stage of grief and that's anger. Anger is an emotion that comes up when you just have to face that obstacle. You know, after getting terrible news, it's really common for our bodies to try to solve it through anger. And that could leave a lot of victims or targets, including yourself, could be doctors, oftentimes God is blamed. But we know that anger isn't a basic emotion. It's a responsive secondary emotion, and it's usually manifested from fear or shame. That's usually the core emotion behind the anger. And in grief, 
yeah, it's that fear, that fear of the loss, the impending loss that you're facing. You're right. And we saw a lot of anger from others and ourselves early on in this, in this pandemic, you know, and, and some of us may still be there and be angry about certain aspects of, you know, cause we lost, we lost more than just lives in all of this. And so mm-hmm. it's all that loss, right? Oh yeah. And, it, and it's heavy loss and yeah. And, yeah. It, and it's important that we recognize where the anger is coming from and try not to get stuck there. Right. And that is exactly what oftentimes happens with grief is that stuck. Um, and so hopefully we can really kind of talk about how to move through that and just being aware of that and recognizing that the next stage in that grief process is bargaining. And what happens is, you know, we try all these ways to get through the grief that are kind of maladaptive, like the denial and the, uh, anger. I don't want to say maladaptive because they do have a purpose and, you know, adaptation is such an important piece of control, But what happens a lot of times is when those uh, strategies don't work, then we kind of resort to bargain because we desperately want to make anything happen that we want, as opposed to the inevitable, really sadness that we know it comes along with grief. And so we, you know, make these deals or bargain. And a lot of times you'll see people get really docile just out of a hope that they'll possibly live longer if they're better or, you know, want to trade something in order to get the results that they want. Um, You know, you just want a quick fix. And oftentimes that's not what has to happen. And that's, you know, this is a painful, painful thing that we're talking about, but it is really important to go through these so that we recognize them So that stage four of the grief process is depression and depression shows up when things get worse. You know, for example, if we're talking about an illness or when that awful reality kind of comes clear of what is happening, Mm -hmm. um, when we're faced with that, then the depression can really set in because of those deep powerless feelings. And we kind of have to go through those before we come to this last stage of grief that we call acceptance. Because once you've left behind those feelings of powerless, you're able to move on to a much less intense kind of neutral state of mind. But of course, that doesn't mean that you don't still have your moments, we would be kind of foolish to think that you go through these steps linearly in an orderly fashion, and then yay, we're at acceptance. That's not how it works. So um, it kind of ebbs and flows and things, feelings come and go. But when you're in that acceptance stage, you can internalize kind of what's happened. And that's when you can move forward and get out of that stack and look toward the future and maybe have some positive interpretation without that blame that we get stuck in. It's really interesting that you can move back and forth between yeah. these. And I think over the course of 2020, um, I spent a lot of time moving back and forth among all of these stages. And, oh, when, when I hear on the news, second wave, third wave, <laughs> yeah, then you're like, 
<laughs> then you're like, I'm just not going to listen to the news anymore. I'm going to just live in denial and click. Yeah. I mean, and I, sometimes in a day I could go from, you know, from anger to depression to okay. acceptance and then back to depression because I got another, another piece of bad news. And it just, it felt like we were cycling in and out of these steps through most of the year. And that's okay. It is it, okay. It is totally okay to grieve differently on a different time frame. Everyone is different. We have to give ourselves that grace. Yeah. I'm going to take a little bit of a tangent here. One of the things that I'm not sure that we put in our outline to talk about, but that I want to mention is that for people like me, and maybe there are others out there, I think that my grieving steps are going to continue well into the next you know, future year, which sounds kind of funky to people who are going, oh, well, we're, everything's going to get better and we're opening up and you know, we're going to get, we're, we may get to herd immunity and we may have all of these things, you know, these good things ahead of us. But for me, that's often when the grief sets in, when I realize what has been lost, because in a way I was kind of in survival mode in 2020, right? And not able to, fully process the loss. Does that make sense? That you hit on a really important point. You know, a lot of these things, these stages are about getting us through that survival period. And it is when you finally have a little bit of quiet and silence and time to process that you can maybe feel those feelings that you were kind of putting off subconsciously or consciously. So good point. So I do want to talk about this in terms of collective grief, because that's a definition that even adds to grief in general. And that's when a community or a society or a nation or a world in this case, experience extreme change or loss. And this can manifest itself like a major event, like a war or a natural disaster, or in our case, a pandemic that has mass casualties and widespread tragedy. And the change in the collective grief is seeing that the whole community, the whole society is out of control. And if you didn't have that thought sometime in 2020, like almost every day for me, <laughs> that, that the whole society was out of control, then I don't know where you were living <laughs> because that was really the theme of the year, right? It can make the powerlessness feel so much bigger. At the beginning, I was stereotypically in the grief and didn't necessarily call it that, right? I couldn't even get out of bed in March, right? It was like sleep late every morning and drag myself out of bed and not be able to consciously go through, you know, it's like, what am I supposed to do next? I had to actually think, okay, now it's time to take a shower. Now it's time to fix breakfast, like force myself into a routine because I was either glued to the news or there was just a disconnect there that was huge. I wanted to know the news, but at the same time, I felt like too much of it was pushing me to such a place of despair. And it felt surreal in those initial months. I didn't know anybody who was personally affected by the virus in the very beginning, because you know the way it broke out here in the United States was in New York and I'm not in New York. And so I kept thinking, maybe they're just making a big deal out of this. Like, so there was my denial, right? It's like, this isn't really happening, you know? And then things were being shut down. And I was like, mm, yeah, this isn't going to be very long. I mean, I remember that too. It's like, oh, 
by April, things will be back to normal, quote, quote. I think that a lot of us were going through those collective grieving steps of the loss of so many things, the loss of jobs, the loss of our social interactions. All of those losses were huge and just as huge in many people's worlds as the loss of life was. And then, of course, throughout the pandemic, that the loss of life and the loss of health became more widespread. And so more of us were impacted by that, too. All of those were grief losses, right? Absolutely. That was, yeah, we just didn't get it or know how to get it, right? you know? And remember, Ginger, all of the grieving teachers who joined us like last April when we were doing those support chats for educators as they were transitioning to remote learning. And I can remember them just so upset. They were missing their students. They were concerned for what the student's safety and well-being was going to be in all of this. They were just overwhelmed thinking about all the things in front of them. You know, everybody was in the throes of grief at different stages and some people were distraught and crying and some people were stoic. And yeah, I mean, it was just, it was really, I don't know that I noticed it as much at the time because we were really trying to be supportive and in the moment. But when I look back on people, you could see the grief all over them. Yeah. 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 It was really pervasive. And in that beginning, we were all just collective survival mode. And that looked different for everybody. And it was really hard not to either go into full denial or to catastrophize everything. I know I just said that word wrong, (laughs) but everything a catastrophe. (laughs) That's what I meant. Yeah. And that brings up an attribute we often see in collective grief. And that's what's called anticipatory grief. It's fear and grief of what is about to happen. When we see that loss all around us, loss of routine, loss of job, loss of social interaction, all those things that you previously mentioned, loss of life, loss of health, it's that we anticipate that loss in our own lives and we absolutely imagine the worst. That, you know, the healthy way to soothe that anticipatory grief is to find balance in the things that you're thinking. So, for example, if you are feeling if you feel that the worst image is to about to take shape, then you can kind of shift that thinking with your thoughts and make yourself think of the best image. So see yourself, set yourself in that reality. And you know that we all could get sick, but the world will continue. And that not everyone that you love dies Maybe no one does, but we're talking about taking the right steps. So neither scenario should be ignored, but it's that neither scenario should dominate either. Right. For me, it was about reminding myself that I hadn't lost anyone yet and that I hadn't even experienced significant losses and changes that other people had. My, you know, I didn't lose my job. You know, nobody got sick. We could continue to do things here at home. We did have to modify a lot of things, but that wasn't as bad as it could have been, but it still happened to me. I would anticipate my big anticipatory fear and grief was that my husband would get COVID because he was doing things 
that needed to be done for the family that were more in the public realm. So he was out more than I was. I was here working from home. I kept thinking, that's how this is going to go down. He's the one, he's going to get it. And then I'd have to tell myself, you know, that that may very well happen, but it hasn't happened yet. And since it hasn't happened yet, I just have to live one day at a time. Right. And so I need to just stay present and we need to, you know, do what we know is the safest things we can do, like implement the things that we know are going to keep us safe. And then notice the good right now. Enjoy the time right now. It's like, okay, that may happen, but worrying about it now, you know, holding that catastrophe in my head as if it's really happening now is going to make our lives now way more miserable than staying present for our time together. And then eventually it becomes about reaching for being grateful for that gratitude for what it is you do have and that you do have control over. And it was that gratitude that that sort of helped bring me out of anticipating all the horrible things every time. That's a really good example of what we can do. There are a lot of things that we can do about collective grief. Experts tell us that public mourning and recognizing our collective loss is crucial. That's why we fly flags at half mast. You know, it brings us that unity and and feeling of community. Coming together with others to grieve is so important. And this has been hampered by our physical need because we've had to be distanced during this time. But we are grateful for that technology because that sure has allowed us to continue to connect in ways that we just wouldn't have been able to do years ago. So it's all about taking action, making a positive difference. That's a step that really helps us with grief in general, all kinds of grief, but especially during this huge time of collective grief that we're experiencing. And that's why it feels so good. And so many people have volunteered at food distribution projects Remember all the mask sewing projects and even demonstrations and peaceful protests because doing something to help is so important to take back your feeling of control and agency, especially when everything feels so out of control. Exactly. I'll tell you something that I have grieved in this time of incredible collective loss. And that's really been that I think for your losing compassion for others. And even I personally have lost compassion for others. So I see others helping during the crisis, right? They're doing the food banks and making the masks and doing the things. And I've done some helping too. And we've done helping at ATN. Like Mr. Rogers says, always look for the helpers in a crisis. But I worry that this social distancing that has been forced upon us for really good reasons is really in some ways contributing to us growing thicker walls around ourselves and harming us in in such a relational way. And we know at Regulated and Relational here at the Attachment and Trauma Network that life is about those relationships. You know, and so I look around and I'm thinking, "Mm, everybody's siloed and everybody's walls are, are really up. And it's been harmed by media, by social media, by not physically, you know, fellowshipping and being with each other and hanging out together in our social groups, our in-person social groups. And it's leading to isolation from people and even a lot of anxiety and fear about what happens when we get back together, because everybody has, has sort of picked a corner aside at this point. 
So I wonder as things open back up, what's going to happen to us. My family was blessed not to catch COVID. We were blessed not to lose any direct family members. I do have friends and other people that I know who did get it, who struggled, um, some who even have long haul symptoms. I know those people and understand their opinions and their thought processes. Um, I have others um, who believe that the quarantine was overblown and that this was no big deal. And others that are actually taking a hard stand and saying, I'm not going to even get vaccinated. And it's hard for me to reconcile my beliefs and the things that I thought and the things that I felt during 2020 with people who I think are, they had big feelings around their opinions, right? Too, just like, I mean, our big feelings have kind of like built our opinions around this and we've all taken our positions. And now when we get back in the world and we're interacting because we have relationships, you know, and socialization to do, it's going to be really hard. So I'm struggling for that, with that. I'm struggling to feel compassion for others. I'm struggling to give myself the grace to feel a little bit of anxiety about getting back together with people, right? I struggle with all of that, with what this is going to be like to get back together and how things are going to be different. And I realize that everybody is experiencing loss and grieving too, even if they don't recognize it themselves and aren't able to articulate that their big feelings, their anger, their sadness, their rage at the system or whatever it is, is really a grief response for, for them, as well as my frustration with, with others is probably a grief response for me. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. And it's very honest and very vulnerable. And that's kind of where we wanted to go with this. And so, you know, I don't have a magic wand, but let me share this. I really like these words from Dr. Bethel Vander Kolk. Most human suffering is related to love and loss. That's where it stems from. So the job of therapists, my job as a therapist is to help people acknowledge experience and bear the reality of life with all its pleasure and with all its heartbreak. Life is a mixture of both of those pleasure and heartbreak. The greatest sources of our suffering are the lies we tell ourselves for healing. It is important to be honest with ourselves about every facet of our experience. That's exactly what you just did, Julie. You were just very honest about what you were feeling. Because people can never get better without knowing what they know and feeling what they feel. And the one thing about grief is that we just need to acknowledge it. Otherwise, we get in one of those stages that we talked about and we get stuck and stay there. Right. Exactly. So, yeah, I'm happy to share because I think that just grief is very much like fear or shame. Like once you shine the light on it, then first of all, it makes me feel better to just tell you, right? But then it also helps other people who may be feeling not the exact same feeling as me, but maybe feeling big feelings that they need to think about. And feel what they feel. Exactly. I just like to sit with that, just that alone. It's okay. Just feel what you feel. Right. This has been a hard time. None of us have ever lived through this particular hard time like this before. And so of course you're going to have feelings. Yeah. And that's, that's perfectly okay. 
So how do we get back to this quote, quote, normal? And well, <laughs> Ginger, back to the original question, do we want to get back to the way things were before? You know, yes and no, right? For me that I have to acknowledge that part of me really doesn't want to go back to that. There were blessings in this pandemic time, much more family interaction and the ability just to slow down. Many of us were able to reflect on what was important and that kind of caused me and others to really reprioritize our lives. Yeah. And then there were all the things that I think are going to come out of it that are huge positives, like all the changes in healthcare. I mean, I think we're going to continue to see like changes and improvements in public health and cleanliness type things and the way we protect ourselves and each other's from illnesses. I think there'll be things that just continue and become part of our world that might have never become part of our world, like telehealth, for example. I mean, what a great thing for us to be able to access medical care and medical expertise, regardless of where we are in the country and regardless of whether we have the physical ability to travel to the doctor's office or not, that was a long time needed. And we've really you know, put an emphasis on that now. Yeah. We were um, always worried about our people in rural communities. So that's a wonderful thing. Exactly. And just the working from home or remotely. Now here at ATN, we've been working from home long before it was cool. Now we're no longer weird, which leads to a whole, I mean, we could do a whole nother podcast on that balance between work life and home life. Right. And when you're working from home, that balance gets weird. Um, it had, you got some good opportunity there, but you know, maybe some hard boundaries that need to need to come up when you do that, but there's going to be further changes from this massive change. And I think we just have to, I mean, we have to acknowledge that. Yeah, we do. And I definitely think we have to be ready for when schools start again in the fall, there will be a wave of emotional dysregulation. We have to be aware of that. And I've been saying that to people when I talk to them, either individually or in in groups, especially educators and people that are working in and around schools and, and what's going on in schools, because just because the pandemic is quote, quote, over doesn't mean that our big stress about the pandemic is over and coming back together in the schools, everybody has gone through the change, but we've all experienced this change in a different way. We could all be in a different state of grief, have had different things happen to us. We had different levels of losses, right? So the adults in the school are going to have significant big feelings, possibly dysregulation, possibly stress that's been toxic for them. And then the children are going to show up with their going to be less skilled at handling their own dysregulation. And so they're going to come in with their own family's losses and griefs and the trauma, if it's been toxic stress in their environment, you know, the idea that we would just get back to normal on academics in the way that we were doing before the pandemic and the emphasis that we put on academics in all of that. I mean, one of the changes is we backed off of that and, and worked more on relationships as a country for our educational system, right? We gave a lot of teachers and educators permission to 
you know, to focus more on connecting, even though they had to connect virtually in, in many cases. And of course, there were children that they couldn't connect with for a variety of reasons. But I think we're going to have to hold that focus on trauma-informed emotional and social learning versus getting like right back into, oh, let's make up for the academic losses. The academic losses, you know, we're going to gain that back only if we address some of the things that we're talking about here. Don't you think? Yeah, it has to be done in that order because we, you know, not to get all neurosciencey, but we can't access those skills needed in our prefrontal cortex until we are regulated. So we have to kind of start with the teachers and then move to the kiddos. We always worry about the kiddos first, and we definitely need to worry about those kids. But if we help heal the teachers, then those teachers will in turn help heal the children. And we have to start there before we worry about test scores. The test scores will come once Mm -hmm. that's done. Exactly. And there are probably many things that children learned during the pandemic that we can focus on. But yes, if you're an educator, if you're in the leadership of that, please, please focus on teacher care, on your, um, on your staff care. This is a big time. We're bringing big feelings back together. I heard a, a sermon a couple of weeks ago that I wanted to bring the concept in. And the pastor was actually quoting Pope Francis in his book that is about COVID-19 and about our global crisis. And he said that, you know, crisis will not let us go back to the way we were before that flat out. We just won't go back because we can't, I mean, the, the changes have been made and now it's up to us as individuals and as a society as to whether this is going to be a change for the better or a change for the worse, that the question is, what will we do with the change at this point? And it's kind of like that Chinese proverb, right? That every crisis is also an opportunity. So that really got me to thinking about we're at the decision point as we sort of step back into our social lives in the next six to 12 months as to what we do. Are we going to go back in and make things better and hang on to some of the positive things that we may have gained during this time and build out more gratitude for the change and for the things that have come about because of the change? Or are we going to get stuck in some of these steps and end up being more negative about the world and about that loss of control that we've had for this last year or so. I don't know. That's a question to ponder and that's a challenge for you to think about, right? That's exactly it. There's no real answer right now for some of us. It's just in that open-ended question. I just kind of wanted to share one last thing as we wrap up and share an experience I had Gosh, almost 20 years ago, I lost my father and my stepfather, both within a period of six months of each other. And so my mom and I would talk on the phone every day, you know, right? Relationship helps us through this grief. And one day I remember talking to her on the phone and we talked about the weather, And that's significant because we've talked about the weather and just some very mundane, simple, stupid things. And it hit me. Oh my gosh. We're not talking about heavy, awful, painful things 
today. Today, we're talking about the weather, and it just kind of showed me it was a way that I could measure where we were at in that grief process because I wasn't carefully choosing the words that I was talking to her on the phone or deciding what to say or what not to say. And it just was this kind of weight lifted off me where I thought, huh, I'm moving forward. We're kind of in this new stage of this grief. You know, not that nothing would ever be this the same again. You know, we just move forward like that. There was just more light. There was just more hope. That heavy kind of fog lifted. The grief had lifted. It wasn't gone, but it had lifted. And of course, you know, like that ebb and flow, sometimes it comes back. But that's a good thing too, because both those men are worth being missed, worth being thought of. And those tender feelings come back. But that kind of taught me a little bit about what resolved grief can kind of look like and feel like. It was grief that wasn't stuck. And for me, that's how I knew how I was able to measure it. And there was no time limit, you know, so many different kinds of grief and so many different ways to process it. But I also learned that I didn't have to process it alone. It was a burden that wasn't just being carried by myself. And so when I think about that collective grief, and that we are all together grieving, I know that we can all together heal. We can collectively heal. And that brings me back to relationship, which happens to be the title of our podcast and something that we just believe with every fiber of our beings. Exactly. Well, thank you. Thank you, Ginger, for processing this with me. And thank you, everyone who's listening, for listening to this and for thinking about collective grief and about what our new normal is and about where we're going. I hope that you have some people in your life that you can process all your big feelings around this collective grief with. And I hope you reach out to ATN if we can help you in any way in that, because, because it's important. It's important to acknowledge what we've all been through and what changes that's going, that's brought and is going to bring. Thank you all for listening. We'll talk to you again very soon. Are you parenting a child impacted by early childhood trauma or attachment challenges? Would you like to learn more about how to advocate for your child's needs in school and other places? And would you like to connect with other parents who are on this same journey? Well, ATN's Standing Strong Conference is for you. This online event is September 13th through 15th with workshops in advocacy, understanding special education, self-care ideas, and ways to create a community of support around your family. Interact with experienced therapeutic parents and trauma-informed experts and connect with others who are walking this same path. You can attend live and also have access to the recorded webinars. Registration for the Standing Strong Conference is open right now. Learn more at www.attachtrauma.org slash standing strong. This has been another episode of Regulated and Relational. Join us next time as our focus shifts to what trauma looks like in the classroom. Regulated and Relational is produced by the Attachment and Trauma Network. A special thanks to Nicole Anderson, our researcher, and Lorraine Schneider, our editor. Music donated by Joe Kramer. For more information about the Attachment Trauma Network, visit our website at www.attachtrauma.org. Show notes and upcoming episodes will be available on our website and through anchor.fm. I'm Danny Pankratz. Thanks for listening.